Kids, have a great time in the back. If you're remaining, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 7, uh, the story we really just heard uh, from Connie. Um, But while you are turning there, just a quick story. Um, My wife and I were very excited this year because we felt like we hit uh, a benchmark in our marriage and in our family life. We thought we'd reach that benchmark uh, benchmark a lot earlier, but COVID, as it does with so many things, has uh, displaced our, our plans. But the benchmark was that this year was the first time all four of our kids were in school, in person. And that was a pretty significant event for us, something that hadn't happened for, what, 15 years. And what we decided to do is uh, now, since all the kids are in school at the same time, uh, we go out to lunch every Friday, and uh, we go to our favorite sub shop in Hamden, and we go out to lunch every Friday, and it's a wonderful time. But I can remember the very first time that we did it, uh, we went to the sub shop, we were eating our sandwiches, and we looked at each other, and we said, I think this is the first time in 15 years we've been able to have an uninterrupted conversation with one another. And we agreed it probably was the first time in those 15 years, and that's because uh, we get interrupted a lot. Don't get me wrong, we love our kids, that's, that's the, the way it is with kids, but often it's very hard uh, to have uh, uninterrupted conversations because kids take interruption to an art form in many ways. That's the way it is with kids. I can remember one of my favorite images from the uh, JFK presidency years ago um, was images of his kids uh, playing at his feet and under the desk in the Oval Office. And you can look these images up and see them. And it's such a powerful image because here is probably the most important person in the free world, uh, in one of the most important places in the free world, and yet here there are kids playing at the feet of the president, having no fear to interrupt this important person in his important work in this most important of places. And I thought about that as I read our story this week because our passage is about another important setting and an interruption that happened in that setting that upended the entire event. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is equivalent to what would be a day's wage in our culture. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this powerful story. Thanks for the power of your scriptures, Lord, that that we get to read these eyewitnesses' accounts of the way you loved people, the way you spread your gospel into their hearts and lives and transformed people. So I pray that as we read this passage this morning, Lord, we would not just see the power in the moment of, uh, in, w- in which all these events happen, but we would recognize its power for our moment and for our hearts and our lives as well. So be with us now as we meditate on your word over the next few minutes. Speak to our hearts, Lord, because we desperately need to hear your voice. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I think our passage in some ways is all about labels, or that's at least the way I want us to think about our passage this morning. And we all know what a label is. You've probably gone to the grocery store and we judge the things that we buy by labels that are put on products. We might pull it off the shelf and look at it to understand the contents of that label. Um, We go to a bookstore, if you still go to bookstores, and you look over at the back of the book and there's sort of labels, things, categories and descriptions of what's inside of that book. Or maybe you go to a a clothing store and you want to know how much the the item of clothing costs or the, the weave of the blend or whatever it is. So you look at the label and it tells you the contents of this thing that you're about to buy. We know what labels are. But I also want to talk to us about the other kind of labels that we also know a whole lot about. These are the labels that we tend to give to one another um, or the labels that we maybe receive from other people or the labels that we live within and we all know what that is, right or wrong or for better or for worse. So maybe it's your school or maybe it's your place of work or in your neighborhood, uh, you've been given or you've earned a label right? Maybe you are the smart one, or maybe you are the funny one, or maybe you're the friendly one, or maybe you're the cranky one, or the, senior, the serious one, right? Maybe you've been given one of these labels. Sometimes we're given these labels, and whether they are true or not, they sort of stick with us. Um, we might actually even live into those labels, right? Stereotypes or caricatures, that we tend to live in them as if they are self-fulfilling prophecies, or we can choose to try to live above them, however it is. But we all know what that feels like. We all know what it's like to live with labels, but we also know the tendency to reduce other people to labels as well. 
that's the dutiful child, that's the rebellious child over there, or that's the coworker over there, that's the one that always sucks up to the boss, so watch out for that coworker. Or that person over there, that person's the malcontent, they're always the one who is frustrated. And so we give labels, we receive labels, sometimes we earn labels, sometimes we reduce people to labels, this is nothing new. And I think we see that in our passage this morning. As we approach this text, we're introduced to a woman who is given a certain label. We see Jesus has a certain label in the eyes of the people that are around him. And then finally, we'll see how Jesus often steps in and transforms our labels. Because in the end of the day, what truly matters is the label that is given to us by God. So as we look at our passage, we're first introduced to a woman who interrupts a very important event, and she lives very plainly, Luke tells us from the beginning, she lives very plainly with the label of sinner. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, the setting in our passage is really important. The setting, Luke tells us, is at the home of a very important Pharisee, a man whose name was Simon. And if you don't know anything about what a Pharisee is, uh, they were very important. They were a part of the religious elite of Jesus' day. And his job as a Pharisee would be to monitor the law of God, to monitor the sort of ritual cleanliness of not just himself, but of all the Jews who were around him. So in many ways, he was a gatekeeper. He was one who made sure that anybody who entered into the temple or to the presence of God for worship was worthy to be there, was ritually clean in order to worship God in the temple because it was important to keep all uncleanliness out. So that meant to, for him personally, To maintain his own personal cleanliness, he would need to keep his distance from anybody who might be unclean, anybody who might be considered a sinner in the eyes of other people. And so there's Simon, this Pharisee, and he decides that he wants to invite Jesus to his home. He wants to learn a little bit more about Jesus And uh, this would have been a very high honor for Jesus. It would have been something that his disciples would have been very, very excited about. And that's because in the ancient world, um, meals like this were integral for climbing the social ladder. So if you wanted to climb the social ladder, if you wanted to reach something higher than where you are, you wanted to get an invitation to a meal that was like this. And if you got one of those invitations... You would certainly attend. You would want to be there. You would want to be on your best behavior when you are there. You wouldn't want to say anything at all to uh, maybe offend or make your host uncomfortable. And if you got through that meal successfully, it would be your responsibility to reciprocate to the host that invited you. You would have to then invite them over to your home for dinner. And if that host said yes, if they said that they were going to come, that was proof that you were now climbing the social ladder. You were uh, getting in with the influencers and the important people of your day. 
And so this was a very important meal for Jesus, a very important meal for his disciples. This was his opportunity to gain influence and to gain social standing. And if everybody played their cards right, if Jesus sort of played his cards right, the disciples played their cards right, this could be a game changer in terms of the way they could influence the culture and the world. But what does Luke do? Luke, the gospel writer, against all script, wants to tell us not so much about the substance of the meal, but he wants to tell us about an intrusion, about an interruption to this meal that was incredibly scandalous because it was an intrusion from someone who had earned a very poor label, a woman who was a sinner. Now, we are told by Luke that she was a woman of the city, that she was a sinner, and so most likely she was a prostitute. Uh, Most likely she was a prostitute of one of the worst kind, if that makes sense, one that would even do business with Gentiles. So she was a woman who was known for her loose morality, a woman known for selling her body to the highest bidder, and so she would have been considered a contagion. I don't use that word lightly. She would have been considered a, a contagion to this Pharisee, treated as a person who had a spiritually communicable disease that you would not even want to get near. You wouldn't even want to get near to it. And so why is she even close? Why is she even there? Well, people in Jesus' day, like this woman, would congregate at the margins of meals like these in hopes that someone, the important people at the table, would uh, have leftovers, essentially, that would be dropped from the table so that from the, these important people so that they could uh, have some food. But the way the social contract worked out is that they were not allowed to approach the table. They dare not approach the table, but she, in essence, in taking a tremendous risk, decides to go against this social contract. Luke tells us that she approached the table with unbound hair. I know that doesn't sound particularly scandalous, but in Jesus' day, this would have been. She starts touching Jesus. No doubt, everybody else at the table is already shocked by what's happening here, wondering if something nefarious was going on between this woman and Jesus. So, needless to say, when all this takes place, everyone at the table is shocked by what is happening. Not only are they shocked because of what the woman is doing, but they're shocked because of the label they had given Jesus. And they saw how incongruous the label they'd given to this woman was with the label that they had given to Jesus. Luke tells us what they thought about Jesus. They had given him the label of prophet. Verse 39, it says this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for he is a sinner. You see, this is relatively early in Jesus's ministry. And so people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And most of the people in his day had at least concluded that Jesus at this moment was a very good teacher 
and likely he was a prophet from God. They, they confirmed those two things, not only by the things that he taught, but the miracles they saw. And so, likely, these Pharisees had concluded this about Jesus, that he was a prophet who had been sent to them by God. In fact, if you're with us a couple weeks ago, we looked at a passage where Jesus was with his disciples, and at one point he looks around to them and he says, who do the people out there say that I am? Who do the crowd say that I am? And his disciples look back and say, well, most of the people think you're a great teacher. They think you are a prophet sent from God. And so likely that's exactly what this Pharisee had concluded. He was a great teacher. He was a prophet that was sent by God. And he was very confident about this label when it came to Jesus until this incident, until what happened at this table. Because in his mind, Jesus' behavior was incongruent with the label that had been given to him. He says as much in this verse, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he is a sinner. The implications are pretty clear here. If this man is a prophet, that means he would know everything about this woman. And if he knew everything about this woman, there is no possible way he would allow her to touch him, to make him unclean by virtue of her presence. But remember, throughout this sermon series, we've seen this. Jesus was what? The expected Messiah who acts in the most unexpected of ways. You see, Jesus doesn't reject her. He doesn't send her away. He doesn't kick her away from the table. Why? Why doesn't he reject her? Clearly, she hasn't lived a very virtuous or moral life. Clearly, there's a lot of rumors, no doubt, that this incident would uh, create amongst everybody who saw this thing happening. Clearly, Jesus didn't even approve of her lifestyle and the way she lived up to this point. So why doesn't Jesus reject her? Why doesn't Jesus send her away? And the answer is this, because of her tears. Because of her tears. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. See, no doubt everybody watching this is thinking something sexually nefarious might be happening here, given this woman's reputation. But the thing that betrayed all of that was her tears, that she was weeping at the feet of Jesus. What did those tears mean? They were a sign of her repentance. And so this act of anointing Jesus, it's not just a show It's not just a religious exercise. Instead, it was her amazing expression of gratitude toward Jesus. Why? Why? What motivated this incredibly generous, incredibly powerful expression? What motivated her to violate the social contract and approach the table in this way? What made made her, motivated her to do all these things? It was because her label had been switched in the eyes of Jesus. Her label had been switched. She was no longer to be defined by her sin. 
Instead, she had been given the label of forgiven. Verse 47, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, and just imagine the power of these words, as he looked into her eyes that were red and full of tears, he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Friends, here's what's so shocking about this passage. Luke tells this story, and the hero of the story is this woman. She's the hero of the story. She's the one who recognizes the depth of her sin. She is the one who recognizes Jesus as the one who forgives sins. And so she, this woman, a known sinner, a known prostitute, the woman of the city, she becomes the example of faith that Luke holds up to us and says, be like that. She is the hero of the story. The Pharisee, the religious person, not so much. You see, he could not believe in his heart that God could know everything about this woman and still love her anyway. And so therefore, he knew little of forgiveness, and therefore, he loved little. And every indication is that he persisted in this blindness. But not the woman. She received the new label. She was forgiven, and she was the one who was loved. Friends, it's such a beautiful story, and there's so many implications to this story that we can't even unpack all of it. But one of the most simple implications is this. Friends, you and I might be, not be prostitutes working the streets of Baltimore, but the label of sinner sticks to all of us. The label of sinner sticks to all of us. Romans tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's plan, of his purposes, of his glory, and it tells us that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. Think about that. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. What that means is this. He knows every single one of your sins. Sins of thought, sins of deed, sins of action. He knows every single one of your sins even better than you do. And what that means is that all of us deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. But in Jesus, you and I, who are sinners, can receive a new label. We can receive a new label. Sure, we remain sinful. We struggle with sin in this life day in and day out. But we are sinners who can be forgiven. Sinners who can be saved by grace. Sinners who can be clothed in the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A Savior who knows every single thing about us and chooses to love us anyway. Isn't that amazing news? Isn't that good news? But there's so many other implications to this story. This woman loved much because she knew that she, how much that she had been forgiven by a Savior. And so Jesus then launches into this parable. And the point of the parable that Jesus teaches here about a Monday lender and two debtors is this, that those who have been forgiven much, they're ones who love much. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. 
And so Luke presents us with this question of us. He wants us to look at our own hearts. What about us? Do you and I, are we like the Pharisee who struggle with all sorts of half-hearted emotions when it comes to God? Do we often find ourselves sort of lukewarm when it comes to our emotions towards God? And if so, it's probably because you and I, we've lost touch with just how sinful we are before a holy God. Perhaps we've lost touch with just how tremendous our debt is before God, just how much we have been forgiven for what we have done. And so maybe like this woman, we need to repent all over again. Maybe like this woman, we need to to come to terms with, with our sin all over again. The Bible calls this repentance. And what the Bible says is that the repentance isn't just something that happens at the beginning of the Christian life, but repentance is something that is to characterize every single step of this walk of faith with Jesus. Repentance is an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing of coming to terms with just how sinful we are and then fleeing to Jesus in faith. It's tears over our sin and then joy over our forgiveness. It's to characterize this life of faith every single step of the way. But finally, Luke introduces us to this woman who is a great sinner, but he also shows us how in faith she was willing to take that risk to find salvation and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And what that means is this. It means that no sin is too great that God cannot forgive. It means that no label is too dirty that God cannot embrace. It means that no amount of uncleanliness is greater than the blood of Jesus Christ that washes all of it away. That is good news. Let's pray.